Welcome everyone um, here in this six part series, Agents of Change. We really wanna draw attention to exceptional individuals who are changing things up. We're curious as we of course hope you are as to what motivated them and what's drawn them into the web of finding solutions that fit problems that perhaps we never knew we had. They're changing the world as they found it. Because Ed and I, are from long careers in the nonprofit world, we believe that change comes from within people who then drive organizations and industries that were ripe for new ideas. We hope you'll find that what you hear about the journeys are just as fascinating as we do and that it will inspire you. Here in episode two, we will introduce you to John Zur Platten, a foremost leader in the game world he will share his experiences, thoughts, and why he's been able to be at the forefront of change in his conversation entitled Game Change Up in the Game Industry. So, John, we would love to hear how you found yourself deep in the game world. Where did that all start? Yeah, well, I've always been, uh, and thanks for having me, by the way, I've always been um, a big fan of, of games. So I loved playing games as a kid. And, uh, you know, uh, in my teen years, uh, the original Atari came out in television, and uh, I was just hooked on wanting to play video games. Then uh, as I moved forward with my life and my career, it sort of fell into uh, the rearview mirror, and I wasn't really that focused on it. Uh, I went into, into traditional entertainment media, and I was working uh, below the line as a production coordinator uh, in production staff on a lot of TV shows over the years. And I spent about eight years at Universal Studios working on a number of, of TV shows. Um, while I was doing that, I was getting uh, assignments to basically break down scripts on a kind of almost daily basis at work. And I started to kind of internalize the rhythms of how to write, but I never really had an ambition to be a writer. Uh, we had a script on one show I was working on. It came in, and I just thought it was the worst thing I'd ever read. <laughs> and I was like, come on. I think I could do better than this. <laughs> and so I went to the producer of the show, like a cocky, arrogant uh, SOB that kind of continued throughout my life. And I, I, said, uh, I said, you know what? I think I could write one of these, and I, I think I could do better. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. He said, prove it. And so... Uh, and so it was over a Thanksgiving weekend that I wrote a spec Seinfeld script and uh, brought it to him and dropped it, on, dropped it on his desk. And he said, okay, I'll get back to you. You know, I went back to my office and uh, right about lunchtime, he said, hey, John, can you come down to my office? I said, sure. And he goes, well, okay, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, give me the bad news first, because here I am thinking, you know, don't quit your day job, whatever. Yeah. So uh, give me the bad news first. He goes, you're fired. <laughs> and I went, holy, what's the good news? <laughs> you know? And he says, I'm going to bring you back on the show as a writer. Nice. And uh, so then I got to write some episodic television, and, uh, I, and then I sort of had this new career. Well, anyway... Uh, while I had that experience, I was also producing visual effects, and we produced visual effects for some games that Sega were doing back in that day of what was called FMV, full motion video games. And uh, 
And one evening after we had shot a bunch of explosions of small, you know, miniature cars and miniature planes and miniature buildings, that sort of thing, and the Sega executives all wanted to come out and see the explosions. Well, miniature explosions are not that exciting to watch because uh, there's a bunch of camera tricks you do in terms of film speed and everything else to make them work and look cool. But, but they, had a, they, had, they had a blast. And afterwards, we decided to go have some margaritas. Uh, and uh, over margaritas, the guys from Sega said, we get so much cool stuff from you guys, so why don't you guys just make a game for us? Hmm. And everybody looked at me and said, John, you're a writer. <laughs> you like games, figure it out. And I was like, okay. And so I ended, up, uh, I ended up writing this game called Tomcat Alley, which turned out to be a big success for Sega that year. Uh, really popular in Japan and overseas in Europe and was one of the number one sellers in the US. Sure. And uh, suddenly I was in the game business. <laughs> and, so, uh, and, and since then I've written about 80 to 100 video games, um, do apps, um, and, uh, and uh, have written for pretty much every major publisher and every major uh, game developer over the years. That's a great story. I, yeah, I love understanding how people find themselves in these most interesting of jobs. And Yeah, I, there was no real plan. It wasn't yeah. like a trajectory where I said, okay, I'm going here, here, right. here, and here. It was kind of like I got knocked to this place and then knocked to that place and then knocked to that place. But, but there were moments where I thought, you know, I think part of, of, of kind of moving forward with, with, uh, with your life and with what you want to do as a career is you have to kind of see a moment and then decide, you know, I can do it. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to challenge myself to say I can do it. And there's, whether it's ignorance or arrogance or, you know, you know insanity, yeah. um, <laughs> sometimes you just have to go for it, you know, and... Uh, I was always kind of one of those firm believers that when I when I saw the door even partly open, yeah. you know, I'm going to be like a cat. I'm going to go to that door and I'm going to yeah. paw at it until I can push it open. And then once I get it open, I'm going to sneak inside if I have to, but I'm going to find my way in. And that was that was sort of my attitude and mm -hmm. kind of continues to be my attitude to this day. I think that's uh, so invaluable. I mean, it isn't just about getting the opportunities, right? You have to recognize it. You have to do something about it. Yeah. And you have to be willing to put yourself out there and... You know, the, the way you move in any direction, in, in any career that you're interested in, is, is ultimately what's going to define, you know, what you end up doing, how you end mm -hmm. up doing it. But for me, I'm never willing, uh, I'm, I'm always willing to fail. Mm -hmm. I'm always willing to say, you know what, I can fall flat on my ass and that's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because sometimes... You just don't know until you put yourself out there and start doing it. And, and what I found, too, is that once you start down this path, you'll find that a lot of people that are doing it and doing it very successfully mm -hmm. have the same insecurities you do. Right. <laughs> sure. and, so, and so, you know, you, you kind of you kind of put people on pedestals until you kind of try and climb up on the pedestal with them. And uh -huh. then suddenly you realize, oh, you know, it's not really a pedestal. We're all just standing on the floor here. Yeah. You know, and that's. Uh, so many, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that in my job, I get to meet lots of incredibly famous people yeah. and incredibly successful people. And to a person, you know, when you kind of just break away and kind of get through all of the all of the gloss uh, that they bring with them, um, they're just folks, you know, and a lot of them have the same issues that everybody else does. And yeah. so, uh, you know, uh, you, you find and I and I found that once I kind of started down that path and I was willing to kind of push in those directions, mm -hmm. um, there's something to be said for being, you know, confident that you can do it. Yeah. And 
And I think people like people who are a little confident and a little bit cocky and a little bit arrogant at times. Uh, because, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather uh, deal with somebody who truly believes in their abilities and believes in themselves yeah. than somebody who's kind of, you know, wishy-washy. Sure. And so that's, that's sort of the way I've, I sort of approached it. Well, it sounds like you know who you are, John, right? And you probably learned yeah, through yeah. this experience mm -hmm. being tested, <laughs> and, right? Yeah. yeah, you have to. And, you know, um, you, know you, you have to have some belief in your abilities. Um, you know, I, I get challenged a lot of times because when I'm writing a game script, if it's really long, uh, the thing about the game world is that the concrete never solidifies beneath your feet. Mm. It's always going to be moving. It's always going to be changing. And you have to anticipate that you're going to get last minute changes and that people are going to come at you. Literally, uh, I had this uh, you know, on a game I'm working on right now. We have we a big actor that we were going to go into a recording session with. And the night before, they hit me with about 20 pages of rewrites. Uh -huh. And and I'm like, are you, are you guys kidding me? But I'm confident that I can do it. Yeah. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm going to get it done. And uh, and if you kind of have that attitude yeah. and you take that attitude with you, then that attitude is something that other people perceive. Yeah, um, yeah I think it works to your advantage. So, John, you um, you were talking about your love of games that developed when you yeah. were young playing Atari. I mean, I remember Atari. Yeah. And I think they, I don't know much about games today, but I know they've changed a lot since then. Massively. So, so you've seen a huge change in, um, not only games, but the industry. And, yep. Um, so I imagine that along the way, you developed skills, you recognize skills that are important uh, uh, to, to be successful in this industry. What do you think those skills are? What would you say? Yeah, I'd say flexibility is the real key. Uh, you're right. The, the games business is n maturing, uh, but it hasn't settled into a rhythm that you might say the television business has, although they're kind of being disrupted by streaming pretty badly right now. Or mm. I wouldn't say badly is maybe not the right word, but they're definitely being affected by streaming. And there's a lot of interesting opportunities happening as a result of streaming. Um, in the game space, I've seen it kind of go through multiple stages. Uh, obviously, uh, as different consoles come out, um, the game space tends to change. Mm -hmm. um, as the graphics get better and the computing gets better and the amount of content you can generate gets better, uh, the games change. Um, you've had things like apps drop in over the past you know, 15 years where now suddenly uh, there are parts of the world where the vast majority of people that interact with the internet do so on a mobile device. They don't mm -hmm. do it on a PC. Um, right. and, uh, and you've also had uh, AR and VR, uh, augmented reality, uh, probably most famous on uh, a game that I helped uh, uh, develop uh, called Pokemon Go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was at Niantic uh, for a number of years. Wasn't directly involved with the Pokemon st uh, staff, but... Um, I did a game called Ingress, which was basically the foundational elements of everything that Pokemon Go was built on, ah. and, uh, and within the same company. Yeah. Um, and so that was an augmented reality experience, and then you have virtual reality experiences now come to the forefront. Um, and the other thing, too, is that you have uh, social gaming, which is sort of redefining how, uh, how players interact with one another. Uh, and the demographics of gaming has changed radically. So when I was first... Uh, developing games, we basically made games for 14 to 35-year-old males. Mm -hmm. um, and and they very much had a kind of teenage boy aesthetic, if you will, right? Sure. So it was very much about action. It was about 
uh, gunplay. It was about, you know, tanks and aircraft. And it was about, um, you know, those kind of, you know, male uh, adventures, if you will. Yeah. Um, but uh, what happened was in uh, social games, uh, there was a huge game on Facebook about 10 years ago called Farmville. Yeah. And what happened with that game is it started to really bring in a lot of female players because uh, those spaces, social spaces, tend to uh, skew slightly more female than male. Mm. And so you suddenly had a number of, of uh, women players suddenly engaged in a gameplay experience and they liked it. Mm -hmm. And so then that started to be something that we started to do more of like, okay, well, how can we reach, you know, there's a huge, huge audience here. How do we get to them? Right. How do right. we start interacting with them? And if you look at the demographics of gaming today, uh, in app games, so things like Pokemon go, uh, there are more female Pokemon go players than male Pokemon go players. So the women skew slightly higher in that demographic of people that play that game. Mm -hmm. In console games, it still tends to be fairly male oriented. PC games, it tends to slide around back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing too is, uh, is the, the age demographics have also skewed, right? So when, when I was a kid and, and you know, I love playing Atari or in television, uh, and playing the early Sega, mm -hmm. uh, playing the early PlayStation. I was in, you know, I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm not, <laughs> um, but I still play games. Huh? So yeah. we find now that the gaming demographic has, has moved into the 60s mm -hmm. uh, for people mm -hmm. um, and, and even into the 70s. So, um, so we have this massive wide audience now that we're trying to appeal to. And so you know, it depends on the game, but yeah, mm -hmm. you see, I've, I've seen radical changes in the business over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and probably the final thing that's, that's probably the most radical change is that the game business is the most successful part of the entertainment industry. Hmm. So the game business does billions and billions and billions of dollars more a year than film and television. Mm -hmm. um, you can have, you can have a film come out and uh, I, this is no way to say I don't love films. I love films. <laughs> And, and I'm involved in that space, so yeah. absolutely amazing. But you can have a film come out and it can be considered a success if it does 100 million at the box office opening weekend, that's, that's probably a pretty good indicator of a film that's doing well. Mm -hmm. um, some of the major releases, like if you, the next Call of Duty game, when that drops, that'll do a billion and a half dollars in the first day of sales. Yeah. So the, the numbers are just radically different mm -hmm. in terms of what, you know, where we are uh, you know, financially in the business. Um, when I started writing games, games got very little respect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, until people <laughs> go, saw the money, right? Right. Well, <laughs> money changes everything. Right. And, uh, and today we have a list talent. We have a list directors. Uh, there are, you know, Academy award winning, uh, composers that compose music for, for video games. Uh, my latest game that I'm working on right now, Jurassic World Evolution, I have Jeff Goldblum and Bryce Dallas Howard and B.D. Wong, and I have like, you know, f famous actors mm -hmm. now participating in gameplay experiences. Um, 15 years ago, that was a rarity. Today, that's common. Mm -hmm. Well, it really is a different kind of um, uh, engagement, right? I mean, I know friends like to get together to go to see a movie. Usually, mm -hmm. you know, you'll go to dinner and then you go see a movie. 
But the people who play games are different, and they get together regularly. They set scheduled uh, certain times where they're going to get together and play mm -hmm. Call of Duty, and it's a bunch of the same people. Yeah. And that's really how they relate to one another. And it's, and it's a worldwide community because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, through online connectivity and, and, and the social elements of the game, mm -hmm. um, there are gaming groups of people that have played for years and they've never met each other in person. Yeah. You know, that's, that's an amazing dynamic that hasn't existed before in the world. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, and, and for younger audiences um, and for younger players, um, they have a completely different expectation about what they want out of their entertainment mm. than, than you know, folks my age. So, um, you know, I have a 24-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter, and uh, they are rare television watchers. Mm. Mm. They get most of the material that they want to watch through streaming or YouTube, and a big part of their entertainment dollar is in games. Mm. You know, they, they want to sit down and play games, and that's how they find their entertainment. And so the, the business itself has to modify itself and adjust to, to kind of deal with these kind of new realities. Well, John, what kind of strikes me is much like my own career in the nonprofit world, especially the fundraising side, is that I kind of grew up with the industry as it was changing. And mm -hmm. that's not at all like where people are coming into the nonprofit world right now. But... How do you think that is sort of um, shaped the industry? Sort of someone like you who has seen it from the beginning as it's evolving was able to bring that experience into kind of where it's going. Um, yeah, I mean, the trick is, is, is you know, I, we talked before about this idea of flexibility. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to be flexible and you... I consider myself to be an everyday learner. So... Every day that I'm out and I'm interacting with people and I'm working on projects, I, I, yes, I have a lot of experience, but I can always learn more. And so the, the thing that I try and bring into everything that I'm working on is I'm willing to learn. If somebody knows something I don't, I'm willing to, to get on board with, with learning what I can from them. And that's about sometimes putting your ego in your back pocket and, and letting somebody else take the lead. Um, because ultimately, these projects, film, television, video games, whatever you want to say that's an entertainment medium-related property, uh, are, are never made by one person. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always a collaboration. It's always, and, and depending on the, the size and scope of what you're working on, the collaboration can be 10 people, or it can be 100 people, or it can be 1,000 people. And everybody is touching it along the way and, and influencing it somehow. And so... Whenever I'm on a project where I'm not sure about something, I'm willing to say, hey, guys, <laughs> I, I, I want some help here. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this. Um, and also being, willi being willing to provide your experience and knowledge in places that other people need it is, is, is you know, if you can take the burden off somebody with a, with a few pieces of, of wisdom that you've acquired over the years, you should do that, and and I try and do that. So, uh, and and the final thing is that I I I I want everybody to look good. So I'm about sharing the success, and and uh, to the extent that I can be helpful to somebody else, and that makes their their part of the process better. I don't jump in to say, hey, you know, I help them on that. 
let them go fly on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Because they, they appreciate it, the team appreciate it, appreciates it, the camaraderie you build with everybody is so much better. Um, you know, I'd, I'd rather win together yeah. than lose as an individual. You, you know, know? I, I, John and I had a conversation once, let's see if, if the same answer comes back, but it was, you know, what were our superpowers? Yeah. So tell us yours. Yeah, my superpower, my superpower is, is really simple, and, and I have an acronym for it. It's called ADOT. And basically what that stands for, A-D-O-T, it's approved deliverables on time. So my superpower is I can get the job done and I'll get the job done for you. Um, I may not be the most talented guy in the room. I may not be the smartest guy in the room, right? I may not be the most experienced guy in the room, although usually I am. But, but, but the, point that I, the point that I can make that anybody else will never make is I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And I'm really good about meeting my deliverables. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of like this interesting superpower that basically anybody can have, right? right. The superpower is available for anyone. It's like, you've made a commitment, honor the commitment. Yeah. And if you do that, you'd be surprised. You know, there are literally thousands of amazing writers, actors, and directors serving you know serving you your latte at starbucks yeah. and what is the difference between them and me because they actually may have more creative talent than i do but what is the difference the difference is when i say it's going to be there friday yeah. it's going to be there friday every time no questions yeah and so especially when you're doing stuff that's a lot of upfront work for a big project um you know the writer has to do his thing before literally hundreds of other people can do theirs. Right. And so the train is waiting. If you're not pulling it, right? If you're, if you're not part of that locomotive that's pulling the train, the train doesn't go anywhere. So when you blow your mistake, uh, when you blow your deadlines and when you don't take your uh, responsibility, uh, you know, seriously, uh, it's not just affecting you. It can be affecting literally hundreds of people. Um, you you're not only stopping people but you're holding up production and when you're holding up production you are generating overages you are costing people money um you know if if i don't work for a week and or i blow a deadline that was due last week uh, on on some of the projects i'm working on literally 50 or 60 people aren't working right and if they're not working they're still getting paid right yeah so so now i've just cost that company what $100,000, mm -hmm. you know, I don't ever want to be in the situation where I'm doing that. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's my superpower. Yeah. My superpower is do the work. It's a good one. Uh, yeah, there, thanks. There's another really good one that yeah. John has that that we like because we share it, which is networking. Yeah. Mm. That, that John just, I mean, if I ask him a question, it's like you can see his little brain going through an old-fashioned Rolodex, <laughs> da, 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 who have I got for Nancy? So, right. Um, you know, you talked to, you've talked yeah. to me in the past about I could you could call up anybody and meet them for lunch, and they're still very open to that. And mm -hmm. I think that is, you know, your superpower number two. Yeah, well, relationships is all I have. You know, um, I haven't really looked for work in about twenty years because mm -hmm. work finds its way to me. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds a little bit arrogant, but mm -hmm. but there's a truth to that, yeah. and the truth to that is that I nurture relationships. So. I, I generally like people. I'm a people person. You know, uh, I I'm very much that that human animal that wants to be interacting or, 
and be a part of being around other people, which is why the pandemic really threw me sideways because, sure. you know, we are social beings, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And um, and so I love interacting with people, meeting people, and I try and treat everybody that I meet and interact with with the same level of respect. Doesn't matter whether they're getting donuts or whether they're um, you know uh, a major you know Hollywood talent. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to give them the same level of respect and the same level of attention. Um, and then what I try and do is with those relationships, I, I want to nurture them. So about every you know six months or so, I kind of have this. It's it's almost like a mental tickler mm -hmm. in my head mm -hmm. that goes, okay, you know what? It's time to just reach out to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It's time to just kind of. And I'll just ping people and say, hey, I hope you're doing well. Or, you know, on Facebook, I'll like their kid hitting a home run for a softball game or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, just to put them back into the consciousness, yeah. right? Just to go, hey, I'm just reaching out to let you know I still remember. We're still friends. I like you. You like me, whatever it might be. Um, because that's where my work comes from. Mm -hmm. My work comes from people going, hey, you know, JZP, you worked on this guy's project. He liked you. He's recommended you. Can you give me a call? Yeah. Right. That's that's how I that's how I work. So the most precious thing to me is my relationships. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some people sometimes will say, hey, you know, this person, can you call him for me or send him an email and make an introduction? And that's when I have to go, OK. Maybe, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> because, you know, there are people that I really, really like and there is, you know, my, my relationships tend to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of people I know, but maybe I only know them through, you know, having worked on a project with them or mm -hmm. uh, through a mutual friend. And so, uh, so yeah, so there, I'm a kind of really protective of, of my relationships. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and when people ask, you know, hey, can you know this person and you can get them my, you know, my script or whatever, I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> eh, let me think about this. Yeah. Um, because yeah, because that's, you spent a lot of years potentially cultivating a relationship and you don't want it to get blown up by somebody that you just kind of introduced, right. saying the wrong thing to somebody. So, um, so yeah, so the, but uh, absolutely. And I, I've, I think that holds true for any business you're in. Uh, you're only going to be as good as the network of people that that you've created, you know, for yourself. And sure. and uh, I'm very, very grateful that I'm in other people's networks because that that that's where. Yeah, that's where I do find employment. Well, it's a it's a nicer way to do business, wouldn't you say? To, yeah, to absolutely. Have friends that you can call on and it makes you a, a better um, it makes you stronger because you have access to more resources. And yep. Right. You were saying earlier that it's hard to be an expert on everything. But if you have a network of people in which you can call. Yeah. And, and, and on top of that, too, you know, uh, a, a, a friend of mine about eight years ago was working on a huge project mm -hmm. and it went completely pear-shaped on him on a Wednesday. Mm. And he had to make a massive presentation to a very powerful person on that Monday. Okay. And uh, he kind of worked his way through all of his, you know, kind of network people that were close that knew the project he was working on. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it wasn't getting fixed. Mm -hmm. And so on Friday, he reached out to me mm. and said, I'm in a mess. I'm in trouble. I, I, I don't know how to fix this. Mm -hmm. And I said, send me everything. Just send it all to me. And he goes, but I don't know how much I can pay you for this. I said, don't worry about that. That's not even the, the lawyers will figure this out, figure this out later. Right now, let's get you back to safe. Mm -hmm. Step one is I don't want you to go into that meeting on Monday and fall flat on your ass. Right. So, so step one is we got to fix this. Mm -hmm. 
everything else can wait. Let's just deal with this. And so he sent me everything. He sent me all the material. I looked at it. I instantly kind of identified where I thought the problem was. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it dealt with some sensitivities on some people's things. So I, you know, pinged him back and I said, I know where your problem is here, but we're going to have to step on a few toes to fix it. Mm -hmm. because whatever, just do it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so over the weekend, I basically rebuilt, rebuilt the project for him. Huh? Was, you know, I, I lost my weekend. It was probably, you know, it was probably about 30 hours of work over the course of two days. Mm -hmm. But Sunday night, I sent it back to him. I said, you're good to go. Yeah. And he looked at it and he literally came back to me, called me on the phone. And he was crying. <laughs> he was like, oh, my God, I couldn't sleep for like four days. And now this thing is where we need it. And, he went in, he did his meeting. The meeting was a huge success. Mm -hmm. You know, the lawyers eventually, you know, sent me a deal and I got some money for it, mm -hmm. um, which was nice. Mm -hmm. But because I went that extra mile and because I just said, don't worry about it, let's get it done. Mm -hmm. That guy has kept me working for the past eight years. Mm -hmm. Since good. then, yeah, since then about once a year, he calls me and says, I have this project. You're the only person I want to do it. A good investment on your part. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and there was a there was a, a, a similar thing. I did a I did a project for uh, some other folks at a very famous uh, you know uh, production company. Uh -huh. Worked on the thing for about six months, yeah. uh, and uh, the project blew up, mm -hmm. which sometimes happens. These projects tend to do that, you know. At times, like something will go wrong, and what happened was beyond anybody's control. Nobody was to blame, mm -hmm. but a lot of work that I had done, I was kind of getting, you know, I was going to be paid on the come and, and now the come is gone, right? Like it's, it's not going to happen. Mm. And uh, so the, the producers came to me and said, boy, we feel really, really guilty about this. Um, we, we'd like to send you some money just for, you know, to say we're sorry. Mm. And I thought about it and I thought, I said, you know, if I, if I take this, it, okay, I feel a little bit better about it, but if I take this, I don't work with them again. Yeah. I knew in the back of my mind that this was sort of, it, it, it wasn't an offer made as a test, mm -hmm. but the end result was going to be the same, yeah. right? If, yes. you take, if you take the money, you've kind, of you've kind of shown yourself to be a mercenary, yeah. and, uh, and, the, and the phone from them doesn't ring anymore. Yeah. And so I went back to him and said, no, guys, you know what? Everybody went into this with their eyes open, you know, no harm, no foul. You know, there no no one's to blame here. Mm -hmm. uh, I love working with you guys. Remember me in the future, mm -hmm. right? Six months later, boom, <laughs> I'm working for them, right? Because because you have to you have to treat these relationships and and the work you're doing. Yeah, it's an investment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what you invest is uh, you've done the work and it's not going to pay off today. Yeah. Yeah. But it will pay off in the future if you've maintained that relationship. See, I think that's fascinating, and I, I think you know. Part of what you're talking is strategic, the idea that um, I'll defer gains now in favor of something later. But I, I feel like it, for you, it's something more than that. There's an element of trust that's in, exactly. inherent in there that, that, that you sort of go by. And, and because of that trust, um, people connect with you and they remember you and they come back. And how, Yeah, how I, I hope that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, people can trust. I, I like to work with people that can trust, right, obviously. But, <laughs> but I think people can trust that if they bring me on the project, the work that they need to get done is going to get done. And it's going to get done in a way that they're going to be happy with. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think they're... I, I used to joke and say, you know, I can write a 120-page script faster than you can write a two-line check. But the, but, the, uh, but the truth of it is, in many cases, that's 
that's the reality. Mm. People need stuff today, they need stuff next week, they need, they're going into recording sessions, they've got deadlines, they've got deliverables. And if you kind of go, okay, let's start by, let me putting up this brick wall that mm. is my agents and, and you know, uh, what the compensation's gonna be, it tends to sour it. Mm. Whereas if you go, let's just deal with the problems, get, get to it, I'm on it, yeah. don't worry, you're covered. I'm gonna do my damnedest to make the best possible versions of the content you need. Mm and the lawyers can catch up to us. Yeah. Um, and they always do. Mm -hmm. And I'm rarely, I'm rarely ever in a situation where I feel like, oh, that was a mistake, you know, jumping in and just starting to work without, oh. you know, letting the business affairs guys go first. Have you been burned before? A couple of times, yeah. but I feel that it's worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel to have the attitude is worth it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I've been able to survive for <laughs> lots of years kind of working in that environment. Um, as a creative, I try and keep the business elements of what I do separated from the creative elements of what I do. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm very fortunate that I have other people that do that for me because I want to just deal with you as a creative. Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about story. I want to talk about the characters. I want to talk about how we're moving the content forward. I don't want to talk to you about what my per diem is. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because that just gets it takes something that's fun and cool and interesting and, yes, can be frustrating at times because creativity is a contact sport. But but um, but that I like, you know, trying to negotiate, you know, what my back end percentage deals are and what you're going to pay me if I have to travel and, you know, what my rate is and everything. Else. Mm. I don't want to talk to you about that. Yeah. Let somebody else, let somebody who represents me talk to you about that. Because if you guys have disagreements, it's not a disagreement with me, it's a disagreement with my rep, you know, and then I can deal with my rep and we can fix it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I try and compartmentalize the, the content from the business. I see. Yeah. Nice. I want to go back to um, your first superpower. You mm -hmm. know, you were talking about honoring, basically effectively uh, honoring commitments that you make. Make, yeah. make a commitment and stick to it. Do you think that applies to commitments you make to yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, especially with the craft that I do writing, you know, there's so many people who sort of approach it as this big angst ridden thing. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> I used to joke like when you join the writer's guild, you know, the, the first question that they ask you on the questionnaire is what's your favorite cocktail? Right. Cause it's like, really, <laughs> <laughs> love, love that. Because, because, you know, it's like, what's the, you know, if you need to make a cliche of a writer, right. The, the cliche of a writer is they're drinkers and they're like, <laughs> brooding and complex and they spend all their days you know staring at their belly buttons trying to figure out the world and all of that and the truth is i'm a happy writer yeah. you know i like to write i enjoy the process uh -huh. um but uh you have to be willing to go this is a lot of work in front of me mm -hmm. and i have to make the commitment to get it done and that that you know that superpower element to that yeah. um, is something that a lot of people can do just choose not to and and in my in my business life um if i have uh if i like say this year i want to write you know x number of scripts or pitch x number of projects mm -hmm. i i try and you know kind of put that into the same situation as if i was working for somebody else so you know, there's a lot of us that will do amazing things for other people, but we don't yeah. do it for ourselves. Right. And so and so I go, oh, well, you know what? I just treat myself as another client. 
so now I'm just, you know, if I do that, now I'm, I'm working for this guy named JZP, and I've got a certain amount of work I need to get done for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that there's a, a maybe, you know, I'm an amateur, uh, you know, psychologist and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, and don't have a real, you know, educated understanding of this other than what I've experienced over the years. But, but what I've experienced is that when you make a commitment to somebody else, uh, there's a sense of needing to uh, not uh, lose face. Mm-hmm. You don't want that person to be disappointed in what you've done. Mm-hmm. And so you'll make the extra effort. You'll go the extra mile to, to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're dealing with yourself, you can disappoint yourself all the time, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. Oh, I didn't get to that today. You know, I, I shouldn't eat this brownie, but it looks so good. I'm going to eat it. But I told myself I wasn't going to eat any more sugar this week. Eh, man, right. I'll deal next week. I'll, I'll eat. Right. So you, you, you treat yourself differently than you treat others. Right. And I think, uh, I think it can be to our detriment if we don't, at least, you know, for the things that we want, the things that we're trying to do, whether that's in personal life or, or business life, mm-hmm. you have to make those same commitments. Yeah. And you have to treat yourself like a client, in essence. Uh, treat yourself like the, the person who's paying your bills. Because yeah. at the end of the day, that, <laughs> that person is, is the person <laughs> paying your bills, right? Right, yep. Yeah, so that, yeah. That's, that, that's the way I try and approach it. Love it, great. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Nancy was telling me that you do comic books. Yeah, yeah so I, I have. Yeah, I'd love to kind of talk about this kind of, I guess, the, yeah, the I influence of how, where this, where this industry is going. Yeah, how video games book. and comic books emerge now. Yeah, so the comic book came about as a result of a, of a project that I've been working on for a number of years. Um, I had this idea, to, kind of popped in, into my head quite by accident, by random was this idea of a reverse vampire myth. And what I, meant by, what I mean by that is normally to kill a vampire, you st- put a stake through their heart. And I thought, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if you had a kind of vampire that you had to pull the stake out of their heart to, to kill them? Huh. So they were basically being kept alive by some magical object. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that, I just couldn't get that out of my head. You know, I, I didn't write anything on it for probably a year or so, but it kept coming back into my head over and over and over again. And then, uh, and then I was uh, on the internet doing some research and I came across the Capcocha, which is basically the uh, sacrifice of children in ancient Incan societies. Mm-hmm. And I started to read it, and it got really interesting to me for a number of reasons. But the most interesting part of it was that the children were basically treated almost like rock stars. Mm. Um, so imagine you're living in a society where you're somewhat poor. Uh, you know, you're, li- you're living off the jungle. Um, and suddenly your child gets plucked, at, plucked out at 10 years old. Your child gets plucked out to become a sacrifice. Mm. You believe in the gods, you believe in this religion. So for you, this is one of the most amazing things that can happen. And for the child, they're brought up into the temples, they're adorned in gold, they're fed in ways they've never eaten before. They're, they're treated literally like rock stars. Yeah. They're almost royalty. Um, and then after a certain period of time, whoop, <laughs> you get sacrificed. And I thought, wow, that's... That's really interesting because when we look at a lot of, of, of things like this, we see it through, uh, you know, a Western uh, modern uh, sensibility. Mm-hmm. And so we have a tendency to look at these things and go, oh, my God, that's horrible. What a, what a tragedy. Mm-hmm. They didn't see it. They didn't see it as such. Mm-hmm. And so once I kind of started down that road, I thought, OK, I can write this. 
Um, and so I wanted to do it initially potentially as a game, but the more I started to develop it, the more I thought, oh, let's make a really cool comic. So uh, one of my producing partners, Rich Leibowitz, uh, said, you know what, let's take this to Matt Hawkins at Image and Top Cow, and I've known Matt for many years. Mm -hmm. And Matt looked at it and said, we really haven't seen anything like this. And I like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> so based on that, uh, I, I ended up writing the book. It's called Saint Mercy. It tells, us, it tells the story of a young Incan girl and a young girl in the American West and how they're connected through the ages via this cursed gold. Um, and uh, finished writing it last, uh, last November. And they started doing the artwork on it. And I have an amazing artist named Atilio Rojo who's in, located in Spain, who immediately got the project. He read it and he just like, I love it. And he was a big fan of Mesoamerican culture and mm. Mesoamerican art. So he was like perfect for it. And uh, so anyway, super excited. Uh, the, first, uh, the first book drops uh, August 25th. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, if you want to go find it, it's available for pre-order on Image or your local comic shop can order it for you. It's going to be a four cool. book series. And then after that, we'll, we'll compile it into a graphic novel. And we're already in discussions about doing the next one. So um, I'm very excited by the property. You're going to, I think you told me you're going to bring it out every month. In yeah, the so it'll be out. It'll be out. Uh, it's starting in August. It'll be out in August, September, October, November. And then there is a plan to put it all compiled together into a graphic novel that'll be out early next year. Um, yeah, and it's available for pre-order, like I said, on Image or... Um, if you want to wait for the graphic novel, you can pre-order it on uh, Barnes & Noble's site, a few of the other booksellers. Cool. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I've always found so fascinating about you is you just like drive for creativity in general, which I, I know our audience is also equally interested in because that's what really has created change for so mm -hmm. many of us in so many different industries. But, you know, what do you think about how creativity has come to form itself in your mind. How do you get into that space? What do yeah. you tell other people about that process? Yeah, well, it, it is a process. And, and, and I love that you say, you know, creativity. Because the, the truth is, is like when people meet me, I don't tell them I'm a writer. I tell them I'm a creative. Hmm. Because the truth is, is that I do a lot of other stuff besides write. But write, writing tends to be my primary goal. But writing is how I express my creativity. So I just say, you know what? I'm a creative. That's what you get when you get me. Um, the, the process of creativity is different for everybody. But I think for uh, most creatives, most creatives are really good observers. So for me, one of the first things you have to be if you really want to understand how you can create something is you have to be really good at observing something. Mm. And so I love to people watch. I love to, uh, I love to go out and interact with the world and see how the, what the dynamic is as people interact with one another. Um, in fact, many people that uh, were in front of me at Starbucks or at Ralph's when I'm getting groceries have ended up as characters in my scripts. They don't know it, <laughs> but I'm always listening. If somebody, somebody has an interesting way of talking, somebody has an interesting phrase, yeah. unique names. I meet people and they tell me their name. And if it's really unique, it goes right into the memory bank, like instantly. Uh, and then, uh, and then I love to do research. So if I think like, Hey, here's a maybe story I want to work on. I'll spend days just surfing the internet, going to the library, picking up books and magazines so that I can just process the content. 
I can look at it and I can and, and, and have it in my head so that when I start thinking about a potential story, um, I have a place to start from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really hard. People say, oh, okay, well, you know, let's just get to the blank page. Ah, I hate blank pages. You know, I, I don't want to be anywhere near a blank page. And to me, the blank page, it may not have anything on it yet, but it's all there. Yeah. It's, I, I, I look at this as more of, uh, uh, if, if, I was a, if I was a sculptor, I look at this as more as knocking the marble away to find this, the, the figure within, mm -hmm. than starting with a bunch of clay and piling it on top of each other and trying to make something. Mm -hmm. so, so the way I look at anything is like, it's there in front of me, I just have to go find it, mm -hmm. right? It's right, I just need to spend time figuring it out and find it. And that's the way I choose to, to, to be creative. And, and I think that the final thing is you have, to, you have to be willing to be somewhat childish. You have to be willing to kind mm -hmm. of go back to the moment when everything was wondrous. Mm -hmm. You know, remember what it was like the first time you saw a firefly. Remember what it was like the first time you saw a lizard scamper across the concrete and, you know, jump into the, uh, you know, the underside of your house. Right. You know, remember what it was like to be on your bicycle riding down the street with your friends and what a magical, wonderful experience that was. We, we forget, kind of, don't we? We do, because life does that to us. Yeah. You know, life has a way of draining from us those things that are magical, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, my dad told me something that I really loved that I remember to this day about Santa Claus hmm. because you know when you're young Santa Claus is just like the most wondrous coolest thing in the world yeah, right sure. it's amazing yeah right of course and then sometime you know by the time you get to about age seven eight nine yeah. ten you know that question comes in is Santa Claus real right right and uh, so I don't remember what age I was but I went to my dad and I said dad is Santa Claus real? Mm -hmm. And he said, of course. I said, you're telling me the truth. And he says, yes, I'm telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. Santa Claus is 100% real. And he said, listen to me. First you believe in Santa Claus, and then you are Santa Claus. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? So Santa Claus is real. Love that. And, and, and if you... Love that. Right. And if you have that attitude, mm -hmm. you know, if you have that attitude about things in your life that you want to, you know, potentially use to mm -hmm. be the start of something creative, mm -hmm. you know, be willing to go back and find that moment of magic. Go be willing to go back and find those moments of whimsy. Uh, if you're writing something scary, be willing to go back and think about the monster under your bed and what that felt like, what that fear felt like. Mm -hmm. Now bring that into your content, bring mm -hmm. that into the content you're creating. You can do amazing things. Um, so yeah, you know, I think, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, storytellers are observers and we just chronicle what we observe and then we, uh, we, we modify it, we amplify it, uh, you know, uh, we tend to uh, exaggerate. <laughs> we, tend to, we, tend to, we tend to make the story more interesting than it was. There was a, there was a, a, a thing on Facebook uh, about four weeks ago that said, you know, one of those things uh, where they ask people weird questions. And the question was, Tell me what you do without telling me what you do, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it's on my TikTok, John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my answer was create people and problems. Mm -hmm. That's what I do, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and that that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, that that basically is what I do. Yeah. 
Um, I guess, you know, what I'm really interested in is, is you have uh, clearly reached out to so many people in their lives. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what you have done or do to bring other young talent, particularly, mm -hmm. bring it forward. How do you challenge them? How do they find you? How do you find them? How you're interacting with them? Kind of what's going on? Yeah, um, I love working with uh, young creatives. And, and the reason I love it is because I get as much out of it from what they bring to me as what I can bring to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, unfortunately in the business, after you do it for a while, uh, a certain percentage of folks get jaded. Mm -hmm. And I love uh, creatives on their way in because they're excited. <laughs> you know, they're the opposite of jaded. Mm -hmm. So. Um, what I'll try and do is I'll try and push them down uh, paths I think will be advantageous to them. Um, young creatives right now should absolutely be looking at indie game spaces. They should be looking at uh, apps. They should be looking at social media. Uh, many folks are creating their own content and putting it up on YouTube. Um, there's no barrier to entry at this point in terms of if you're interested and want to do it and you're willing to make between zero and very small investments, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, financially, um, you can you can get your stuff out there, um, and so I encourage I, I encourage them to do that. And then when I see real promise or real sparkle in somebody, I I try and pull them into things that I'm doing if I can, mm -hmm. so that they can at least get the experience. So many people that I that I've met and and taught uh, have ended up working for me, like going into meetings and stuff, and they'll take notes. Mm -hmm. And I know they'll take good notes, but the, really reason, the real reason I'm bringing them into the room is I want them to feel it. Mm -hmm. I want them to see what a real creative jam session is like where you're actually in a room and you're talking about a big project. Uh, I've brought uh, some of the folks that I know to recording sessions. You know, it's exciting for them if it's in a famous actor or actress there. Um, but also they can see the process. They can see how it works. They can see... Uh, they can see how the, the creative back and forth takes place. Um, and, and what I tell everybody is, look, I can maybe get you into the room, but I can't keep you in the room. Right. That's on you, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. so, so for anybody who's out there who has somebody they might be able to leverage for an introduction or something like that, do that at a time when you know that if you get into the room, you can stay in the room. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, are you ready to do the work? Are you prepared? Do you have some knowledge base that, that's going to be valuable to the other people there? Um, there's so many high-strung uh, personalities in the space that, uh, that sometimes you can get into a situation where it's confusing, right? Like, you know, why are these people yelling at each other? I thought they're all working together. And you're like, well, okay, that's part of the process. Don't worry. By the time this is over, it's going to be fine. And so you gain, you can gain some maturity uh, through experiencing it for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try and bring in uh, young creatives as much as I can. Uh, uh, and you know, as I as I get, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I'm at the tail end of my career, but certainly on the the uh, the edge, <laughs> the edge of having done it for long enough that I consider myself to be kind of a senior in that regard. Um, I would love to see uh, somebody that I've worked with or somebody that I've, I've helped uh, bring through the business uh, go succeed, go get those jobs. Um, 
I, I, I've told many people that I've helped, I said, look, if one day you take a job from me, that's going to be the happiest thing in the world. You know, I'm going to hate you. <laughs> but no, I would love that. I would love for somebody to be able to compete uh -huh. at my level and, and succeed. Um, that, that's terrific. Uh, and, and I get excited by that. Um, do you think that there was a moment, John, where you really, a defining moment you can think of where you, you suddenly went, you know, wait a second, I'm at a place where people are listening to me. Uh, I always remember when I was younger, it's like, yeah. that's the thing I sought is to have credibility. Yep. And um, do you recall a moment where you suddenly went, oh, wait a second, I think I know what I'm doing and they're listening. Yeah, I was actually uh, invited. Oh gosh, this has to have been maybe 15 years ago now, but I was invited to speak at a big uh, conference, entertainment conference that was happening in, uh, in North Carolina. And uh, so I thought, oh, okay, well, that's cool. I'll go sit on a panel or whatever. And they said, no, 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 you're going to be the keynote. And I went, uh, you want me to do a keynote? And it was right after uh, Chronicles of Riddick had come out. So there was a lot of buzz around the game and there's a lot of buzz around Riddick and, you know, the Vin Diesel connection is always fun. And he's a terrific guy, by the way. Um, but uh, so I went and I, I did the conference, right? And I didn't really have anything prepared. Like, I don't, I don't write up a speech. Mm -hmm. I kind of do bullet points. And I know that I, I, I'm a verbal thinker, but I'm also able to be, I don't know what you call a conversationalist or whatever it might be. I can talk for hours about pretty much anything, <laughs> even if I don't know what it's about. And, uh, and uh, so I had my bullet points of what I wanted to discuss. And I had, uh, you, know, you know, presentation, uh, slideshow. And uh, and I went up and I thought, okay, well, this would be a couple hundred people, close to a thousand people in the room. And I was like, you know, kind of that first, you know, okay, just imagine everybody's naked and, you know, kind of get over <laughs> your fears and all of that. Right. And I went up and I just riffed and I riffed for like an hour mm -hmm. and people were laughing and people were entertained and I got great questions back from people asking them this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, you know what? I kind of do this, right? I can kind of do this, right? So anyway, I get off the stage and it's really fun. And uh, the, the, the people that brought me to the conference said, yeah, there's somebody we'd like you to meet. I'm like, oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And it was the governor of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the governor of North Carolina had been sitting in the back row and seen my entire speech. And they said, oh yeah, it's great stuff. And thank you so much for coming to the event and everything else. And they leave and I'm having this, you know, so now I'm high, right? So yeah. now I'm, I'm, I'm buzzing. Yeah. And then I remember <laughs> one, of the, one of the jokes I did was a joke basically on masturbation. <laughs> and it was, it was embedded in the speech, but it was kind of like, you know, I thought it was funny and the audience laughed. But then I went, oh my God, I just, I just did that joke in front of the governor of North Carolina. But they, they didn't seem to mind. So it was like, but it was, it was you know, that, that for me was the moment when I went, okay, uh, yeah, I feel like, I've reached a different level. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you said credibility. And I tell everybody when, you know, even young people, when you're first talking to people, one of the things you have to do is you have to credentialize yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, who's going to listen to you about a particular subject if you don't have some experience and credibility and can talk about it with, with knowledge and, and, and experience, right? And who's going to listen to you? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, gaining that credibility, that was huge for me. And, and that was a moment when I thought, okay, Okay, I, I, this is what I do for a living, and people are okay listening to me talk about it. 
Cool. Well, John, this has been fascinating. I want to thank you so much for um, being our guest today. Uh, My pleasure. And sharing your stories and your history, and um, it really is, has been fascinating. Thank you. Um, before we wrap, I want to ask you uh, one question that we ask all our guests. Sure. Um, what would you do with your time if you never had to work for a living again? Oh, wow. That's a really great question. Um, if I never had to work for a living again, I would probably spend the vast majority of my time traveling. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I've been around the world uh, and been to a lot of places as a result of my career, which has been awesome. Um, and I had this obsession that I don't do as much as I used to about taking photographs of doors. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, and I have about, I don't know, a couple thousand photos of doors from various places around the world. But, um, but that would probably be something uh, I'd, I would really love to do. And, uh, and the second thing is I really love uh, miniatures. So huh. I'd probably spend a lot of my time, you know, building and painting miniatures <laughs> uh, if I didn't have to do anything else. But, but I'd want to stay busy. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the thing I cannot imagine doing is going to Wyoming mm -hmm. and putting my feet up and watching the sunrise and set. Mm -hmm. I just I can't imagine doing that. <laughs> um, I'd want to stay busy, stay active, and stay connected to people. Um, so that's, that, that's sort of what I, that, I think that would be sort of my, my ideal retirement. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, I want to thank all of you for being our guests today on this uh, podcast, and we want to thank um, all of you for um, joining us on this journey that we embark on with our guests. Um, we look forward to bringing you more stories of remarkable individuals who are changing things up. Um, I want to let you know that you can find John's book, The Ultimate Guide to Video Game Writing and Design, on Amazon.com. And as our own agents of change, please catch us at www.yourchangelab.com. Coming this summer, where you'll soon find fun online gamified courses, coaching, and information making a difference to the nonprofit community. And watch for the announcement of our third episode soon. Thanks for listening.